Well, if you would, you could open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 3. Last week, we we really looked just at the one word in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, and we focused simply on the doctrine of repentance. Today, we want to focus on the second aspect of John's message, the kingdom of God. And so again, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Again, we're just going to focus on the kingdom of God today. I'm I'm going to come back to this section one more time and just preach the whole section uh, from from probably 3, 1 to verse uh, 12. But uh, today I just want to look at that one thing, the kingdom of God. In uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the same message that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what did John and Jesus have in mind when they said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Last week, I told you that for for us today, a kingdom is closely related and connected to the gospel. But after Matthew chapter 12, Jesus never again presents the kingdom as being at hand, as being near. And so we want to ask, what was he offering with this kingdom? What was he offering to his generation? And I have so much to show you on this that I I could probably really do two whole Sundays on this, but we're going to try to do it in one Sunday. This is such a massive topic that really covers all of Scripture And so it's hard to know where to begin, what to include, and what to leave out. And what we're going to do today is going to be more like a Bible study than a sermon. I don't even have an outline for you today. We're just going to go and look at a number of passages and and kind of see if we can answer this question, what is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Now, as we think about this this morning, here's how I hope this is going to be helpful for you. The kingdom of heaven... I believe, is the theme of Scripture. The kingdom is what God is doing and has been doing throughout history. And what we're going to see is God's plan for creation. In other words, our study is going to cover the scope of God's plan for the world. We live in a world that God created good, but then was cursed because of sin. And the kingdom program of God is the work that God does to undo what happened in the fall. We live in a world corrupted by sin, wickedness, and uh, that, that sin and wickedness mars and distorts the things that we might otherwise enjoy in this world. Sickness and disease bring sorrow and grief in this life. Death is an end to life in this world that wasn't an original part of God's design. We might at times enjoy many good things in this world, but sin and sickness and death remind us that things are not right. At least not yet. Mankind wasn't originally made for life in a world cursed with sin, sickness, and death. And so we long in ourselves for the restoration of all things. And God's kingdom program is what brings about that restoration. And so today we're going to look at the big picture. And so in the midst of COVID-19 and self-isolation and these kind of gatherings and, and services on YouTube... 
in the midst of other trials of living in a cursed world, we sometimes need to just zoom out and see the big picture of what God is doing. And the first thing I want you to notice is that neither John nor Jesus explain what they mean when they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even Matthew, when he records this some 30 years later, he doesn't think he needs to explain what the kingdom is for his readers. Matthew could have put a little note in here somewhere that explained what John was talking about, but Matthew doesn't do that. Why not? Well, likely because he thinks that his readers would know what the kingdom is. And where would they get that information from? Well, of course, from the Old Testament. Remember that Matthew is writing to Jews, or at least it seems like he's writing mostly for Jews, to people who know their Old Testament Scriptures. And so many times already in this Gospel, Matthew has given us one short quote from the Old Testament, expecting us to not only know that verse, but even to know the context, and sometimes even the whole book that that verse tied to. The other Gospel writers, Mark, Luke, even John to a lesser extent, they're going to explain Jewish customs. They're, they're going to explain the Scriptures that they point to. But Matthew is writing to people who really know their Bibles. And so where would Matthew and John and Jesus have expected their listeners to have received an understanding of the kingdom? Again, obviously from the Old Testament. Did the Old Testament speak about a, a kingdom of heaven? Does the Old Testament speak about a kingdom of heaven? And the answer, of course, is yes. Although that exact phrase never happens in any text, the idea of a kingdom is clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. Now, before we go to the Old Testament, we just, I just want to address one thing in, in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the only one who uses the kingdom of heaven. 32 times in Matthew, we have the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Zero times anywhere else in the Old Testament does that occur. So Matthew uses it 32 times. Nobody else says the kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, John, even Paul, they never say kingdom of heaven. They say kingdom of God. And so five times as well, Matthew uses that phrase kingdom of God. Mark has kingdom of God 14 times in his gospel. Luke has it 32 times in the book of Luke and six times in the book of Acts. In the epistles, we see kingdom of God eight times. And what we see from this is that kingdom is a significant theme even in the New Testament. Many, many times in the New Testament, this theme comes up. But Matthew is the only one who, who uses the, the phraseology kingdom of heaven. And the reason he does this is likely because the Jews were sensitive to the use of God's name. They avoided using God's name as much as possible. And Matthew was conscious of this, and so as he translated Jesus' words into the Greek of his gospel, he used the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. It's likely that when Jesus spoke, he spoke in Aramaic, and so whatever would come into the Greek language would have had to be, have been translated, although Jesus probably did know and at times speak Greek as well. And so Matthew translated kingdom of God as kingdom of heaven. Heaven is where God dwells, and so this is an indirect way of referring to God, a way that the Jews would have preferred. And just to show that these 
two things, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, aren't two different things. I just want to show you in a few places that these are really the same. Remember, five times Jesus uses the, or Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of God. And so turn with me just maybe one page over in your Bible to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. The sermon, as we're going to see in a few weeks when we get to this, is uh, a description of a kingdom citizen. This is what a, a, a truly repentant person looks like, is what the, the Sermon on the Mount proclaims. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, right at the beginning of the sermon, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Matthew 5 and verse 10, just a few verses later, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a a sermon on the kingdom of heaven. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7 and verse 21, as the sermon is coming to a close, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But then note, as we see this whole sermon is saturated with this idea of the kingdom of heaven and what a kingdom kingdom citizen looks like, right in the middle of this sermon, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, right in the middle of this sermon Jesus is not telling his disciples about a different kingdom or talking about a different kingdom. And so we can see here that kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are really just synonymous terms. Matthew choosing kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven because kingdom of God would have, would have upset the Jews in some kind of way because they preferred not to speak the divine name and to, and to use that kind of phraseology. Turn again one more time that I can show you this Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The, the rich young ruler, as we know him as, he wants to know about eternal life. And this is a great passage. I want to preach this passage someday. I'm not going to be able to do that today. But all, all I can say today is that Jesus points this man to an idol in his heart. In, in order to have eternal life, he must turn away from his love for the world. Verse 21, Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, 
but with God all things are possible. Notice again there, verse 23, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 24, Jesus talks about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. And in the context here of eternal life and salvation, it's pretty hard to see Jesus talking about two different kingdoms here. Now, we're going to have to come back to this later, and probably next time I come to Matthew, I'm going to explain how the, the connection between the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and eternal life and salvation. But right now, as we think about that, what the kingdom is, look, look at the next verse, Matthew 19 and verse 27. Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will, what then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, Peter's thinking here, Jesus is talking about eternal life, entering the kingdom, treasure in heaven, and he thinks, what will our treasure be? And Jesus talks about the new world. It's literally there, the regeneration. This is the time when God recreates the world, when he restores all things. In the regeneration, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus says that when this regeneration happens, he will sit on his glorious throne and his disciples will also sit on 12 thrones at that time. And note the language of sitting on a throne. When you think about that, who sits on a throne? Right? A king sits on the throne. And what do kings do? They reign. They rule. And where do kings rule? They rule over a kingdom. And so there's typically three aspects to a kingdom. There's a ruler, a king. There's a, a realm where the king reigns. And then there's the actual rule of the king over his realm. And so there's always in a kingdom, there's a ruler, there's a realm, and there's the, the rule, the exercise of that kingship. And Jesus is in, in this passage is talking about a time a time that is still future for us when he will reign with the 12 disciples over Israel. And at that time, everyone who has lived for Jesus' sake will be rewarded and inherit eternal life. What we'll see in our study today is that this reign of the Messiah was promised in the Old Testament. And when it begins, it will continue forever. It's an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom on earth established in Israel, but it has a worldwide impact to the nations. And at that time, the earth will be restored, renewed, changed. And at this time, uh, uh, when this kingdom begins, the, the initial phase of this kingdom reign is going to be different. We're going to see this as we go. It, it's different than the eternal state. And so there's a, a time period of this kingdom where there's an intermediate kingdom, and then from then on it continues into the eternal state. And this kingdom will be marked by righteousness, peace, justice, long life, health. But in that time, there will still be sin. At least in the intermediate time of that kingdom, there will still be some sin and death. 
And Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the initial phase of that kingdom is going to last for 1,000 years. And after that 1,000 years, Satan will be judged, God's enemies will be removed to the lake of fire, and the kingdom will continue forever with only righteousness and with only the worship of God happening. And so let's go now, as we think about what is the kingdom of heaven, let's go to the first kingdom passage in the Bible, and that's actually Genesis chapter 1. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to do like a little theological foundation on the kingdom here, starting in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 to 28. And as we turn there, let's just think about for a minute about the theme of Scripture. What is God doing throughout the storyline of Scripture? And we know that God's ultimate aim in everything is to glorify Himself. And we would typically say that God glorifies Himself through His works of creation and redemption, and and that's correct. God is going to glorify Himself through creation and redemption. But if we go back to the beginning we can see that God had an original purpose for man to reign on the earth. Man was made in the image of God to represent God on the earth. And God designed us, mankind, to glorify Him by reigning over creation as His representatives. And according to God's eternal plan, that reign failed because of sin. And redemption then sets us right, makes us right, and sets us up to rule again with God. Except this time, after the fall, a new representative is our head where Adam had failed. Christ, God's Son, the Messiah, He came to redeem us from sin, and He will come again to rule as our leader. And so Genesis 1.26, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In verse 26, man was to have dominion over creation. It's a rare Hebrew word there, dominion. It's used 23 times in the Old Testament. It means to rule or to rule over. The word is repeated again in verse 28. This time it's with another word, subdue. And subdue has the idea of subjugate. And so man was to rule and to subjugate creation. These are kingly words. These are regal words. And so we see right from the very beginning, God's plan was for man to rule and have dominion over the earth. Now, I want you to turn now with me to the very end of the Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5 is the last verse in the main body of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 6 to the end is the epilogue, kind of the the final tie-up of the book. But Revelation 22, 5, 
And what we see there is that man is back in the garden. The tree of life is back and God's presence is back. Sin is no more. And let's start there then with Revelation 22.1. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be seen in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And so in the end, mankind will reign forever and ever with Christ. We will reign with Him on a renewed earth with no more curse. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. And so from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see this theme of the kingdom of God, the, the, the a godly kingdom representing God on the earth. And this is what is restored in Revelation 22.5, and they, that is God's servants, will reign with Him. They will reign forever and ever. And so what we want to think about then is what happens in between. And what we want to do is really a, a broader survey first, kind of, like I said, set some theological foundations for the kingdom. And then I want to take you to some specific promises of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And so Genesis chapter 1 showed us that man was created to rule. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that mankind sinned and that we were removed from the Garden of Eden. Now man's sin was no surprise to God. God knew that it would happen and He planned how He would deliver us from our sin. And all along, God had a plan to glorify Himself and to fulfill His purpose for us. And so turn then with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 was written by David and it really acts like a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the verses we just looked at. Psalm chapter 8, you can see in the superscription, it was written uh, a psalm of David. This is a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let's just look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, there's the, the look at creation, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. David is writing this well after the fall. And he recognizes that man is still given dominion over the works of God's hands. And he specifically mentions the, the beasts of the field, the sheep and the oxen, the, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. In other words, man is still called to rule even after the fall. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, which picks up this same commentary. It's kind of like a, a running commentary through Scripture on Genesis one twenty six to 28. 
The author here in Hebrews chapter 2 quotes from Psalm 8, starting in verse 5, we'll read there, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and now he quotes from Psalm chapter 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The author of Hebrews says in verse 8, right after quoting Psalm 8, that at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, in subjection to man. Man is still called to rule, but that rule hasn't happened yet. Then he says, but we do see Jesus. In other words, what man is yet to do, God will accomplish through Jesus Christ. And so Genesis 1 taught us that man was created to rule. Genesis 3 shows that man failed through sin. Psalm 8 shows us that, that man is yet to rule. There's still a rule of man on the earth. The, the mandate given to man in creation is not yet removed. Hebrews chapter 2 then adds that Jesus is the new Adam. That, that man had still not succeeded, but God became a man in Jesus Christ and He will succeed where we failed through Adam. Jesus will succeed. And that's what we see then in, in the final passage as we work our way through Scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, another place where Scripture comments on Genesis 1.26 and on, on Psalm chapter 8. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, we'll pick it up in verse 21. It says, For as by a man came death, of course that man is Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Paul is comparing here, he's comparing Adam to Christ. Adam's sin brought death. Christ brought resurrection from the dead. First Christ was raised. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then we will be raised when Christ returns, when he comes. Look at what Paul says next in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Then comes the end. When Christ returns, the end comes. Christ is going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after He destroys every rule and every authority and power. Note then verse 25, for He must reign. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the question here is, why must Christ reign. In verse 27, the next verse, Paul now quotes from Psalm 8. As the ultimate man, Christ must fulfill the original design of Psalm 
chapter 8. He must bring everything under his feet. And when he has accomplished that, when Christ has accomplished that, even conquering death for all time, then he will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. And so let's read that again, that whole passage in context here, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And so just to recap what this passage is showing, Christ has risen from the dead. And he will come again according to verse 23. And when he comes, those who belong to him will be resurrected like he was. Verse 24 tells us that after, that Christ will deliver a kingdom to God the Father and that he's going to do this after destroying every rule, authority, and power. And the reason in verse 24 is that he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. And what all this means, again, is that there must be a reign of Christ before He hands the kingdom over to His Father. And this reign fulfills Genesis 1, 26-28 and Psalm chapter 8. And then after that reign, Christ is going to hand the kingdom to God that God might be all in all. And this intermediate reign of Christ, we call it the Millennial Kingdom. And we call it the Millennial Kingdom because in Revelation chapter 20, it says that it will be 1,000 years. A 1,000 years is a millennium. And this reign must be an earthly reign, a reign upon the earth, because there must be a reign of man where the last Adam failed. Where the last Adam failed over that realm where he was given this mandate to rule, that now Christ comes to reign where the first Adam failed. And all of these passages speak about an earthly reign of man over creation. And that sets the the theological foundation. Now what I want to do is take you to some specific promises, some specific prophecies in the Old Testament. And we'll start by going to the verses and context that Matthew has already pointed us to in the first two chapters of his Gospel. Matthew has already shown us that Jesus is the Christ. And and yeah, you could turn to Matthew. We're going to be really all over Scripture here this morning. But Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew one twenty three, he quoted from Isaiah 7.14 to show that Jesus was the virgin-born Emmanuel that Isaiah spoke about. Isaiah 7 and the surrounding context said that Israel, Judah would, would go into exile, but God would give a son who would one day restore Israel. Just listen to Isaiah 9 and verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so this virgin-born son given to us, given to Israel, he will reign. And the government will be upon his shoulders. In other words, he's going to carry the government. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he is going to reign. Now, where is the throne of David? Where is that kingdom? Well, obviously, the throne of David was in Jerusalem on the earth. Notice, too, that when this son who is born begins to reign on the throne of David, he will uphold it from then on. It says, from this time forth and forevermore. When this kingdom comes, it is a forever kingdom. And so obviously this has not happened yet. Matthew also pointed us to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And in, 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 that's in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6. Here's how it is in, in Matthew chapter 2 verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The, the ruler Shepherd is Jesus Christ. And although He reigns in our hearts and over us now, that is not the kind of rule that Micah is speaking about. Micah chapter 5 talks about this ruler shepherding Israel in the strength of the Lord and them dwelling secure. And this ruler shall be great to the ends of the earth. Micah chapter 5 verse 5 says, He shall be their peace. It's literally there, this one shall be peace. This one will be peace, or this one is peace. Verse 6 of Micah 5 talks about how Assyria will even be shepherded by Israel in those days. And verse 9 says that your hand, that is Israel's hand, Micah 5, 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And so in this day, in this day of the, the reign of the Messiah, the Israel's hand will be over their enemies and their enemies will be cut off. That is, there's no more enemies for Israel. And the, the horses and, and uh, the, the chariots will be destroyed. That is, the weapons of war will cease in the land. From verse 15, it seems that this applies really to the whole world. Micah 5.15, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And so implements of war will be no more really throughout the whole world. And Micah 5.11 and following indicate that even idolatry will be removed from the world at this time. Listen to Micah 5.11 if you're not there right now. Micah 5.11, I will cut off the cities from your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And so we see idolatry is removed But this is still, as we look at this passage, we, we can see that although idolatry is removed, although the weapons of warfare are removed from the land, although Israel now worships only the Lord, 
still at this time, according to verse 15, there are still nations that do not obey and they will be punished in that time. And so this state, this rule of the Messiah here is different from the eternal state where there will be no possibility of nations or really anyone left on the earth that does not obey God. And so when Christ rules, at least in the initial phase of this rule, the Lord himself will see to it that no false gods exist and that those nations who do not obey will be punished. Next, Matthew pointed us to Hosea. And uh, Matthew 2.15 quoted from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Hosea promised, as we just look, and you could turn to Hosea if you want. I'm going to look at a few verses in Hosea. But Hosea prom- prophesied that Israel would be exiled. Hosea compared Israel's first exile in Egypt to another exile in Assyria. Israel would be sent to Assyria. And just like God delivered e- Israel from Egypt through Moses, so God would again deliver Israel, this time from Assyria, through a new leader, through a, a new Moses, a, a really a new David even. Hosea 3.5 says, Afterward, the children of Israel will, shall return and seek the Lord their God. After this time of exile, after this time of foreign rulers ruling over Israel, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Verse 5 begins with afterwards. We might ask, well, after what? Well, look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. From the days of exile until today, Hosea 3.4 describes Israel. When we think about what does it mean without sacrifice, without ephod, really that's from 70 AD at the destruction of the temple and really continuing on to this day, we don't see sacrifices happening. No Israelite is, is making sacrifices in, in our day today. And so Hosea predicts that after this, there would be a time when Israel would return. In other words, Israel will repent. Same word there like we looked at last week. Israel will repent and seek Yahweh their God. And they will seek David their king. David is what the Messiah is often called throughout the New Te- throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the Messiah was going to be the ultimate son of David. And notice this repentance and coming to the Lord, it says, will be in the latter days. The book of Hosea also ends with a call to repentance. Hosea chapter 14 and verse 1. In in light of what God is going to do in, in bringing this kingdom, Hosea calls his people then because repentance was necessary. Hosea says, return, or we could say, repent, O Israel. Return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all our iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. That's what the Israelite was to come and, and say to the Lord in their repentance. That they, they can't rely on horses. They can't rely on chariots. We will, we will do what you ask, Lord. Take away our iniquity. And verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for, for my anger has turned from them. 
And so God promises good to Israel. He says that He will heal their apostasy, but it will happen when the nation repents and returns to the Lord. Matthew pointed us to another scripture in Matthew 2.18. We have a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. And you could turn, if you wanted, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 to 33 are chapters that speak about the new covenant. And again, Jeremiah was written in the context of Israel going into exile, but God would bring them back from that exile. Jeremiah 31 Verse 27 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beasts. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And so in the same way that the Lord assured that Israel was taken into exile, so he would bring them out of exile. And this would happen through a new covenant. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now this might bring up a question for you. Aren't we in the new covenant? And the answer is, of course, yes, as believers, we are in the new covenant. But does that mean that God has somehow replaced Israel with us? And the answer to that is no. God has brought some of the new covenant blessings on us, but He hasn't forgotten what He promised to Israel. He has added us into what he promised to verse 31 to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In fact, look at Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. That's some pretty strong language there. If, if, if the light will stop shining, if the moon will stop shining, if the sea stops roaring, then the, the Lord will, will, will cease to have Israel as a nation before him. Again, he repeats this in, in verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Verses 38 to 40 give the area of a rebuilt city of Jerusalem bigger than the city has ever been. And then it says, verse 30, Jeremiah 31, 40, that the area described shall be sacred to the Lord and it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. Jeremiah 32, verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Israel was saying, rightly so, that the the land had been given over, the city of Jerusalem had been given over to the king of Babylon. But God says now, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I have drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. And who's going to lead this saved and restored Israel? Look at Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Remember, the Messiah is the branch. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Remember, Matthew had shown us already that in in Matthew 3.23 that Jesus is the branch, that he is the David, the king who will one day sit on the throne in Jerusalem Jeremiah 33:23 The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose thus they have despised my people so they are no longer a nation in their sight thus says the Lord if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of the heaven and earth then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant, and I will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. And so God could not be clearer here. He will not reject Judah or his Messiah. He will fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He will do what he promised in the world. Now, there, there's so much more that I, that I want to show you, and we're really running out of time, but let's look a little bit in some of the minor prophets. Turn with me to Amos chapter 9. <clears throat> Amos chapter 9, just a couple books over from Hosea. Amos chapter 9, starting at verse 11, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David. The, the booth of David is like the, the house of David, the dynasty of David. And so God is promising a day when, when the, the kingdom of David is going to be raised up. The, the kingdom that has fallen and he will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows and the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the people, the, the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so here we see a, a time when the uh, the kingdom of David is going to be restored like in, fo- in former times and the, the bounty of the harvest is going to be so abundant that the reapers are going to be overtaking the ones who plow and there's just going to be, uh, it, this seems to be a, a hint of the, the restored creation when God remakes the world. The, there's going to be such a blessing in Israel and, and never again is there going to be war. Never again are they going to be uprooted in the land. And so everyone can sit under his own vineyard and under his own tree and, and enjoy the fruits of his labor because it won't be stolen like in former times when in the days of the judges, Israel was always raided and they were being robbed of their produce and the, the fruit of their land. Now turn then to Zechariah chapter Nine, another passage that, that points forward to this coming kingdom and what the kingdom will be like. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 is a, a great text for Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. And uh, Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9 9 with his first coming. Look what it says there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. But then look at what it says in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is that Zechariah 9 verse 9 was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, but Zechariah 9.10 is awaiting fulfillment at the second coming of Christ. At that time, again, there will be no more war and Christ will reign from Jerusalem over the whole world to the nations. He will speak peace and He will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of of the earth. Look at Zechariah chapter 12 now, starting at verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so the Lord is going to save Jerusalem and Judah and Israel both physically and spiritually. 
Zechariah 13 and verse 1 says, "In that On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Zechariah 14 then talks about the day when this will happen, the return of the Lord. The nations are going to come against Jerusalem for war. Zechariah 14 verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of a battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day, this is speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. We are the holy ones who will be with the Lord on that day. And the Lord is going to go out and fight against the nations and conquer and establish His kingdom. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the one and His name one. Skip down to verse 11. And it, that is, Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now in verse 16 and following, we see how different the world will be from then on. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booze. And so we see here a, a restored earth that, that worships the Lord. People from Egypt and Assyria going to worship the Lord and even to keep the feast of booze. Of, of course, this awaits the, the coming of the Lord, the establishment of His kingdom. J- just listen to what Isaiah chapter 19 speaks about this time. It says, In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And so here's a day when Egypt is worshiping the Lord and yet there's still oppressors in the land. And so this is something that we've never seen in our lifetime, and yet this is something different than the eternal state. This is, again, speaking of what we call the millennial kingdom. Verse 21, And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship 
with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Verse 23, Isaiah 19, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." Again, this isn't talking about individual Egyptians and Assyrians worshiping the Lord. This is the whole country. And if they fail to worship the Lord, they will be punished. Now, I want to really bring this to a close, but I've got to show you a couple more. And really, there's so much more that I could show you. But turn to Daniel chapter 2, because this is really the closest language to the kingdom of of heaven that we see in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole thing. You can read this on your own time later today if you want. But in in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. A little bit into verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell them to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Verse 4, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And so the king, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He doesn't remember the dream maybe. And so he wants the interpretation and the dream told to him. And if not, he's going to tear the the interpreters and the the Chaldeans and the magicians and the the sorcerers and the enchanters. He's going to tear them limb from limb. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Now they, they come to Daniel and in verse, Daniel gets involved here and in verse 27, Daniel answers the king. He comes now before the king and he said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So here's a a, a dream about the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now these, Daniel is going to explain, and what these represent is four kingdoms, maybe even we could say five kingdoms throughout history. The first one, Daniel's going to say, the head of gold represents Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. The, the next, the, the, the chest and arms were silver. That seems most scholars believe that represents the next kingdom in history, Medo-Persia. The, the bronze thighs um, the, were represented Greece, and the, the iron legs represented Rome. And then after Rome, there's a, a Rome-like divided kingdom that's partly iron, partly of clay, and that seems to be the, the continuation of nations that are, are Rome-like that are all over the earth even until this day. Well, Daniel explains all this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. He says, now, that, now this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And notice then, again in verse 34, the final kingdom that destroys all the other kingdoms in verse 34 is cut by no human hand. And this kingdom then comes and fills the whole earth. Verse 44, Daniel explains this and he says, in the days of those kings, that is the, the kings of the Roman like iron and clay toes of, of this statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and that that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. And so the final kingdom that comes from heaven is a forever kingdom established by God, and it destroys and replaces all other earthly kingdoms, showing again that this is not a, a heavenly or spiritual kingdom in our hearts or in, in the church or even in heaven, but this is an earthly kingdom that replaces the kingdoms that exist on the earth now. It will be a physical kingdom on earth 
but one that is established in righteousness and justice by Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, I don't have time to explain all of what's happening in Daniel 7, but there's a, a parallel vision dream that Daniel has of four beasts. And these four beasts really represent the same kingdoms that we saw in Daniel chapter 2. We can just pick it up in Daniel 7 and verse 13, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Remember, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days, which is God. And He was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see that this kingdom that Daniel saw in chapter 2 coming from heaven really comes from heaven through the Son of Man who rides on the clouds of heaven and comes and receives a kingdom and dominion over the earth. In verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And so we see that we, again, the saints of the Most High are there with Christ when He returns to establish this kingdom. Verse 19, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth and of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before the, um, before which three of them fell and the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So there's an Antichrist figure here that is removed, and the saints now reign. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now these passages that we've been looking at all morning here all relate to the kingdom that Jesus offered. Because the King was in their midst, because the Messiah was there, the kingdom was near. And in order to receive the kingdom, a particular generation would need to repent. They would need to turn from their sin and accept the Messiah. And Jesus and John then offered this kingdom to Israel, but they refused to repent. Now you might wonder how that works. Obviously, God knew that they would not repent. And it's really the same as when we call people to repent. God knows how they will respond, and yet He offers them the gospel. We see similar situations throughout the Bible. God offers things if certain conditions are met or says what will happen based on conditions. God knows what will happen, but He deals with people in those situations and He allows them to make choices. Jesus offered 
his generation, all these physical and spiritual blessings. He, he was the king and he was there. But again, they refused to repent, which God knew would happen. And yet Jesus offered them and, and preached that here I am. The Messiah is here. Turn from your sin and, and the kingdom will come. But Israel's refusal, again, always in God's plan, opened the way for the church because God had promised blessings to the Gentiles as well. And we will take part in this kingdom when Christ returns. All the promises that we looked at will be fulfilled when Christ comes again and we as believers in Jesus Christ will reign with Him forever and ever. Now I've just shown you just a fraction of the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom. And the New Testament, when we, when we go through and as we examine the book of Matthew and, and even going to passages in Luke and we look at the kingdom program of God, we'll see that the New Testament doesn't change, modify, reinterpret, or somehow absorbed what God promised in the Old Testament. This is what awaits us. We are going to reign with Christ a thousand years on a restored earth when then all wickedness and sin will be removed and we will reign with Him forever. Now let me just kind of close here by just giving you a, an understanding. We're not going to be able to go to all the passages, but I just want to give you a timeline of the kingdom program. When Jesus came the first time, the kingdom hasn't come at Christ's first coming. The, the kingdom will come at His second coming. And before what we think of as the second coming, the return of Christ, there's two imminent events, two events that could happen really at any time. And those two events are the rapture and the tribulation. And these events, because they are both imminent, because they are both could happen at any time, they likely really happen at the same time or so close to the same time that you won't be able to tell from one when the other will begin. According to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Jesus is going to come and meet His saints in the air. In John 14 verses 1-3, to Jesus talked about going to prepare a place for His disciples. And He would go to that place and, and because He went to that place to prepare a place for them, because He went to heaven to prepare a place for them, He said He would come again and take you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus is going to come and meet us in the air if we're still alive when He returns or if, if we have already passed away, we will be with Him already when He comes and He will gather His saints and, and meet them in the air and He will take us to be where He is at the right hand of God. And during that time, there will be a tribulation on the earth, a time of unprecedented destruction when the wrath of God is poured upon the world. Now God has promised to deliver us from that wrath and so we will be with Jesus in heaven during the tribulation. The tribulation is described really in many passages in the Old Testament, but especially in Revelation from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19 then describes the second coming of Jesus Christ, His coming to the earth this time to destroy His enemies and to establish His kingdom. Revelation chapter 20 then tells us that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That's in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3. And uh, a, a, an angel comes and seizes the dragon, verse 2, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations 
any longer. Right now, the devil is loose, deceiving the nations. But at this time, after Christ returns, the devil is going to be sealed for a thousand years that he might not deceive the nations any longer. After that, it says he must be released for a little while. Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones. Maybe the same thrones that we saw in Matthew chapter 19. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw also the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That is also including us in that passage. And they came to life. They were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. The second death is hell. And they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. In verse 7, when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison And for a short time, he will deceive the nations and he will be judged. And then in verse 11 and following of Revelation chapter 20, we see the the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of all mankind. Everyone is now resurrected and judged. In Revelation chapter 21, this is where God's kingdom program is heading. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, this is what awaits us in the eternal state of the kingdom. Look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and they will, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so, brothers and sisters, this is where history is heading. And this is where we are heading if we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We too are part of the kingdom program because now we are made citizens of God's kingdom if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And as citizens of heaven, we await the coming of this kingdom where we will reign with Christ forever, where the world will be made right and there'll be no more curse, but only joy and blessing in the presence of our God. Let's pray. Father, we 
Thank you for this kingdom program, for what you are doing throughout the world, that what we failed to do because of sin, you will accomplish through Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when he returns and reigns, conquers this world, restores it back to you, and brings about righteousness and justice in the land. Until then, Father, help us to stay faithful to you, to love you in the midst of this cursed world, and to look forward to that day when we will reign with you. We pray that you would do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.